David's plan to infiltrate the Philistines while in the battle against Israel is frustrated only to find a tragic situation at Ziklag. This is the 59th sermon in the series, Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming this morning from Samuel in chapter 29. Samuel in chapter 29, the entire chapter, and then over to chapter 30, the first 10 verses. Chapter 29, and then over to chapter 30, the first 10 verses. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. Now the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek, and the Israelites pitched by a fountain, which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed on by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed on in the reward with Achish. Then said the princes of the Philistines, What do these Hebrews hear? And Achish said unto the princes of the Philistines, Is not this David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, which hath been with me these days or these years? And I have found no fault in him, since he fell unto me unto this day. And the princes of the Philistines were wroth with him. And the princes of the the Philistines said unto him, Make this fellow return, that he may go again to his place, which thou hast appointed him, and let him not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he be an adversary to us. For wherewith should he reconcile himself to his master? Should it not be with the heads of these men? Is not this David, of whom they sang one to another and dances, saying, Saul slew his thousands and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said unto him, Surely, as the Lord liveth, thou hast been upright, and thy going out and thy coming in with me in the host is good in my sight, for I have not found evil in thee since the day of thy coming unto me unto this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's favor thee not. Wherefore, Now return, and go in peace, that thou displease not the lords of the Philistines. And David said unto Achish, But what have I done? And what hast thou found in thy servants so long as I have been with thee unto this day, that I may not go fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered and said to David, I know that thou art good in my sight, as an angel of God. Notwithstanding, the princes of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Wherefore, now rise up early in the morning with thy master's servants that are come with thee, and as soon as ye be up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose up early to depart in the morning to return into the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captive that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city. Behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captive. And David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captive, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abathar, the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abathar brought hither the ephod to David. 
And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David went, he and the six hundred men that were with him, and came to the brook Bezor, where those that were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and four hundred men, for two hundred abode behind, which were so faint that they could not go over the brook Bezor. Paul writing to the church at Rome, Romans in chapter 8, beginning in verse 28 through the end of the chapter, verse 39, by the same Spirit, the Apostle writes, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now the life of King Saul is the tragic story of a man that was given everything that he could ever wanted. Anything that he wanted, he was given. Whatever he imagined, he was given. And yet he refused to obey the voice of God in the simplest of commandments. Like Adam in the garden, rebellion was found deep within the fabric of his entire being. And in the same way that Adam desired to be as God, so too did Saul desire to be the king. He wanted the dynasty for himself, desiring for himself what was right and what was wrong, what was good and what was evil, according to his own narcissistic, faulty mind. From the very beginning of Saul's tenure as king, his disobedience is well documented. As he gained more and more power, he became more and more persuaded that he was the king and he could do whatever he wanted. And as he began to sink deeper and deeper into darkness. He became more and more paranoid, plagued by his own evil heart. He became more rebellious, more narcissistic, more murderous to the point where he finally loses all sense of self-restraint by seeking counsel after slaying all of the priests of God. He finally falls into the extreme darkness 
by seeking counsel from the witch at Endor in a last-ditch effort to secure his royal dynasty. We last saw Saul communing with the witch at Endor, who is called literally the ghost mistress, which was a clear expression of his acceptance of her counsel and her fellowship, once again showing the true nature of his wickedness and his desperation to know the future apart from God. It was this final act of rebellion that finally identified him as God is identifying him as the enemy of God. By that act, he then is now identified as God's enemy, God's adversary. And although he goes to the witch disguised, remember, he goes to the witch disguised and under the cover of night, he is exposed for who he is and for what he has done. There's a very simple lesson there. In fact, some of the most profound lessons are simple. No one can hide from God. The lesson is no one can hide from God. You can disguise yourself with good works while retaining evil motivations, but you cannot hide from God. Furthermore, You cannot hide or disguise yourself from motivations of self-justification. You can't hide in empty prayers. You can't hide in judgmentation of others, thinking that you are more holy than they, because you cannot hide from God. If your heart is not right with God, you remain under the cover of darkness, just like Saul. Even as Adam and Eve tried to disguise themselves by taking the leaves from the trees, because they had sinned against the Holy One of Israel. And just like Saul, sin will find you out. Eventually, sin finds us all out. Now, God providentially sets the stage for Saul's final humiliation by gathering together the forces of the dreaded Philistines at Aphek. Notice verse 1. Now, the Philistines gathered together all of their armies to Aphek, and the Israelites pitched by a fountain which is in Jezreel. Now, notice the situation. The situation is as follows. The Philistines staged the totality of their forces on one side, thousands and thousands of their troops on one side, while the Israelites staged their armies near a fountain in Jezreel on the other. Now this was a very strategic move by the Israelites, since to be encamped by a fountain of water provided the necessary fuel to keep the army hydrated, especially since the valley of Jezreel was a desert desert area. Very strategic. The unfortunate issue, however, here, is while Israel needed physical water for their physiological health, their biological hydration, what they lacked and what they really needed was not that physical water. What they really needed was the spiritual water of life that only Christ could give them. What they needed was God on their side. And they were only fooling themselves by thinking we have enough water to survive, we have enough water, and the Philistines are on the other side, and we'll be fine. No, they weren't fine. Even though they had the water, they were not fine. And what is so ironic is that they really believed that an access to physical water would give them an advantage over the Philistines. But again, and again, and again, at this point also, they are dead wrong. What they didn't know was that the hand of God was against them. It didn't matter how much water they had. Now remember, at this point, when the Philistines are staging their armies against Israel, David is hiding within the camp of the Philistines. He's in the good favor of the king of Gath, and he's hiding within the camp of the enemy of Israel. David is, however, cunningly 
hiding within the camp of the Israelites. He has already cunningly won the trust of the Philistines, particularly the king of Gath, Achish. Now he hides, as we've already seen, in the enemy camp for a couple of reasons. Firstly, to hide from Saul. Saul was trying to kill him. And there was no advancement of the kingdom from David's perspective as long as he was running from the king of Israel, the narcissistic, out of his mind, murderous Saul. Secondly, by embedding himself within the camp of the Philistines and by gaining their trust, he might, as we see here, he might now have an occasion and be able to take that occasion to destroy the Philistines from within by turning on them during the heat of the battle. It would be a destruction from within. But as we have already seen, as we have already read, that plan doesn't flesh out entirely the way he planned it. Since the Philistines now refuse to allow David to enter into the front lines of battle against Israel, obviously the lords of the Philistines, unlike the king of Gath, they were suspicious that David would betray them and fight for Israel. Now remember, David found favor with the king of Gath, Achish, and so David and his men are kept in the back of the army with Achish, ready to strike when the opportunity presented itself. We saw this in verse 2. And the lords of the Philistines passed on by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed on in the back by the king Achish. Now when the princes of the Philistines realized that David was brought into the battle, they were beside themselves, they were wroth. Then said the princes of the Philistines, what do these Hebrews, why are they here? What do these Hebrews here? What are they doing here? This is the battle against Israel. Why are these Israelites here? Now Achish, obviously by this point, must have been softened to David, but not the other kings of the Philistines. They still were suspicious. In fact, they knew, they knew of David's fidelity to Jehovah. And they didn't trust him. And this speaks volumes about David's character before the entire world at that time. His character was not hidden. It was not a hidden testimony no matter how hard David tried to deceive the princes of the Philistines. They still remained suspicious of David, and rightly so. He had a track record which was God-centered, Christ-centered, kingdom-centered. But Achash still trusted David. And he saw him as an asset to the cause of the Philistines. Note his explanation of why David should be in the battle against Israel. And Achish said unto the princes of the Philistines, Is not this David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, which has been with me these days or these years? And I have found no fault in him since he fell unto me unto this day. Now, that is an interesting statement because what he's saying is, is not this David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel? And the Philistine lords might have said, yeah, right, that's the problem. Now, consider the argument. Achish tells David that he's the servant of Saul. But his intention was, as he addresses the Philistine lords, his intention is, this is David, the servant of Saul, who was betrayed by Saul. Saul tried to kill him. He tried to assassinate him time and time and time again for no good reason. That's enough, don't you think, for David to be on our side? So Achish is pointing out what he thought David might be feeling. Think about this. He figured David was like himself, a man who would take revenge. But that was not David at all. 
Here's where the man was dead wrong. David was not hoping, never was he hoping to revenge himself upon King Saul. Because he had that opportunity many times to exact revenge upon Saul, but he refused. Once in the cave, when he just cut off a piece of his robe, and the other part where he would take the spear from Saul's head while he slept in the camp, refusing to slay the king. So he chose the high road of forgiveness and hoped in God for a peaceable end to the situation. David was able to hold on to an accurate theological understanding of God, his commandments, and how he works in the real world, while at the same time applying that knowledge to his everyday life. And that's the problem we face today. Holding on to a theological understanding of how God orchestrates all things is what we need. We need a theological understanding of the orchestration of all things by the hand of God without responding to that knowledge in faith shows immaturity of religion. If we do not respond in faith to the providence of God, that shows immaturity of religion. In other words, we must trust God in every providential situation, the smallest and the greatest. And so whenever something goes wrong in our lives, and that's what our lives are peppered with, things going wrong. So whenever something goes wrong in our lives, or whether we have to face trials, difficulties, betrayals, slanders, sadness, sickness, and even death, instead of navigating the situation by our default fleshly responses or by going to witches and wizards of the secularists, we must be like David. We look to God knowing that He, God, has orchestrated the situation always for our good and always that we would mature thereby. So we must always respond in faith, trusting God, knowing that He is our Father who always cares for us and who will always want for us the best, even as we are in our darkest hour. So as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and that's what life is all about, we walk daily through the valley of the shadow of death. But David says, well, he is contemplating that walk. He says, but he knows that God is with him. His staff and his his rod, they comfort him. And he prays before God. He looks to the Lord who has orchestrated all things. The Apostle Paul understood that. He understood suffering. He understood what it meant to suffer. He understood how one who suffers must go to God. And so he writes to the church at Rome. In Romans 8, 26 and following, likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, especially when we are in the valley of darkness. When you are so consumed with fear and and confusion, not knowing what the next day holds, how do we pray? Sometimes we can't even pray, but we groan. But here Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps when we are infirmed. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts knoweth what is in the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And then he says this, and we know, He is presupposing that they should know this. The mature Christian needs to know this. And we know that all things work together for good. Not individually, 
as we shall see with the case in David's life, not individually. When you think about when you make a cake, when you bake a cake, you take all of these ingredients, if you eat them separately, it's a disgusting thing. (laughs) You put them all together, you get this incredible, incredible thing that's pleasant, that's nourishing. And we know, he says, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose, His purpose, His purpose. The problem is that we want all things to work according to our purpose. So Paul is not only telling us to trust God in faith and hope, but he's also telling us that we should be praying during our time of difficulty, even if we do not have the words to pray. We are to pray nevertheless, even if it means groaning. Trusting God to assist us in that supplication. I remember listening to a preacher preach once at a conference and he was relating to us the story of when they found out that his wife was gravely ill, terminally ill. He said at that point, and here is a minister of God whose vocation is to pray consistently for himself, his family and his congregation. Here is a minister of God telling his congregation at this conference that when he heard the news of his wife's terminal illness, he couldn't even utter a word. All he could do is say, Oh God, Oh God, Oh God. Because he knew that the Spirit would help him in his infirmities. Because he knew that the Spirit would make intercession with groanings, even his groanings, before the throne of God through the mediation of Christ. The great reformer, theologian, and author of the Genevan city, John Calvin, who was no stranger to suffering, advises this. Notice what he says. And here's a man who suffered daily. He says, when we are so shut up by grief, has to shun the light and presence of men. The gate is so far from being shut against our prayers that then in truth is the most proper season for engaging in prayer. For it is a singular alleviation of our sorrows when we have opportunity to pour out our hearts before God. When God permits us to lay open before Him our infirmities without reverse and patiently bears with our foolishness, He deals in great tenderness toward us. The miseries of the godly are so tempered with God's fatherly mercy that they do not fail under their burden. And even when they fail, they do not sink into destruction. Quote. Now the hymn writer Thomas More composed this tribute to encourage those suffering under God's maturing providence. And he calls it a maturing providence. And he writes this in one of his verses. Come to the mercy seat. Fervently kneel and bring your wounded hearts. Here, tell your anguish. Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. The next particular of Akash's argument is the length of time David has spent with him without so much as a hint of betrayal. So he says to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, which has been with me these days? In other words, he's never taken opportunity to hurt me. He's even been been with me these years. He's never done anything to betray me. And I have found no fault in him since he fell unto me this day. Now that was a weak argument. Which only proved that David was a calculating man of great patience. I have known people for 20 some odd years that all of a sudden I didn't know them anymore. 
Achish thought he knew the man, David. But he did not. This brings us to another observation. David was cunning and skilled in deception against God's enemies. And this is a lesson for us as well. When faced with God's enemies, we are given liberty by the direct commandment and example of God's holy writ to deceive the enemy if it means honoring God, protecting the people of God, or even life itself of those that are not part of the kingdom of God. We can deceive the ungodly. They are not worthy of truth. Rahab, the Egyptian midwives, all deceived the wicked Pharaoh, all deceived the wicked men of Jericho. And what did God do? He gave them houses. He gave them blessings. He extolled them for their deceit against the enemy. But these arguments of Achash, the king of Gath, did not convince the princes. Note their anger and their remedy. And the princes of the Philistines were wroth with him. And the princes of the Philistines said unto him, Make this fellow return, that he may go again to his place which thou was appointed in, and let him not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle. And they knew, they knew what he would do. He'd be an adversary. Notice what word they're using there. That he'd be an adversary to us. For wherewith shall he reconcile himself to his master, should it not be with the heads of these men? What is interesting about this is that it shows how Achash had been blinded, but not the princes of the Philistines. They were looking at the lifelong testimony of David and were almost certain that once he saw his beloved Israelites, he would turn again and become an adversary to destroy the Philistines in the same way that the angel of the Lord had become an adversary against Balaam in Numbers 22.22. And that word adversary, brothers and sisters, is the word Satan. He becomes the Satan, the great Satan against the enemy. Now consider the Philistine argument and how they rehearse the exploits of David to convince Achish that David is not to be trusted. Notice what they say in verse 5. Is not this David of whom they sang one to another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. And the ten thousands were the ten thousands of the Philistines, which he cut off their private parts, circumcised them in violation of their paganism to bring them into a, a, a pseudo-covenant. This is the David that you want to go into battle with? Now, of course, that gives Achish a moment to pause. And so he appeals to David, to return from the battle, even though he still believes that David's motives are pure. And he says, go in peace, so that we do not displease my lords, the lords of the Philistines. David, of course, sees his plan unraveling. He protests, what have I done? And why hast thou found thy servant so long as I have been with thee? You're not letting me go into the battle. I want to fight in the battle against the enemies of my lord, the king. But Achish answered and said, I know that thou art good in my sight as a messenger of God, notwithstanding the princes of the Philistines have said, you shall not go with us. So he tells him to rise up early in the morning and depart. Now having been found out as a possible betrayer by the princes of the Philistines, David at the behest of Achish takes his army the next morning, leaves the battlefield, returns to the land of the Philistines, leaving the Philistines to fight at Jezreel against Israel without him. We see this in verse 11. Now at this point, David might have been disappointed. And yet, knowing his faith, he probably looked at it as a sign from God that the timing was not right. Now on the way back, to the land of the Philistines, he arrives at Ziklag after a three-day journey only to find that the evil Amalekites, another dreaded enemy of God, had smitten the people, kidnapped the women, 
and burn the city with fire. Now, it was God's providence that David would enter into the city in order to navigate that wicked situation. Nothing is happening by chance. God is orchestrating all of this. God withheld David from the Philistine battle only to direct him to a more urgent situation of greater importance. And that is how God works. So when you're frustrated from doing A, B, or C, think about maybe God wants you to do X, Y, and Z. Now sometimes we want a certain thing. Oh, we want a lot of things, don't we? But maybe that's not what God wants. And if God doesn't want it, you shouldn't want it. And sometimes when we want a certain thing, God withholds it from us, we need to take a step back. Because most times, it's because God wants us to go in a different direction in order to mature us further so that we might be more useful to Him in the kingdom work. Notice verse 1 of chapter 30. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captive that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. And so David and his men came to the city. Behold, it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters. All of them were taken captive. Now through this incredible atrocity, you think about this. God is bringing further suffering upon this future king of Israel, David. And he now is, because of this, is so distressed, especially since his wives have been taken by those wicked barbarians. And you think about this. You think about the reality of this. David's wits are being stretched once again to almost the point of breaking, and his faith at this point is further tested. And David's two wives were taken. A horrible thing. David had left off protecting the city where his wives lived and where his men had their families in order to seek an occasion against the Philistines by embedding himself in their battle against Israel. In other words, David left his family and the families of his men vulnerable to attacks. And there's a practical lesson here as well. We never leave our families vulnerable to the wicked, even if it seems like a good idea. Or even if it seems like it's for the advancement of the kingdom. I'm going to advance the kingdom, so I'm going to go to India and leave my wife with ten children over here in the States when I'm going to India and helping the people in India. These are real events People say that. I know people that have gone to India, Africa, here and there and the other place, and their wives are lamenting there because their husband is gone and they have to raise the children all alone. But those men, they're heroes. We never leave our families vulnerable to the wicked. So here God turns David back from the battle against Israel in order to restore his family to safety. Now at this point, David's men had just about had it. They were weary and war-torn. Moreover, David had been an ongoing scourge to the Amalekites, which was an obvious provocation to their attack on the defenseless city where their families were hiding out. And this was all on David. This was perhaps his lowest point. You know, you can't poke the bear and then leave hoping the bear's not going to come against your family. This is at David's probably his lowest point especially since now his own men, his own men, his own men want to stone him. And David was greatly distressed. 
For the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But notice, but notice, greatly distressed, people want to stone him. They were grieving over the the captivity of the sons and their daughters, David's wives as well, but David does this. He encourages himself in the Lord his God. He looks to Jehovah his God, the God of nations. He doesn't run away, he doesn't fall down and crumble. He encourages himself in God. Commentator Dale Ralph observes, he says, Here is a sobering and disturbing picture for God's people. Are there not times when you think it cannot get any worse? Are there times when you conclude that your present trouble is the last straw? You simply cannot take any more. Then comes Ziklag, the last straw after the last straw. But David encouraged himself in God. In the face of David's last straw, consider what he does and what he does not do. He does not give up. He does not curse God. He doesn't think God hates him. He doesn't think of changing his religion. He doesn't think of throwing himself off of a cliff. He doesn't wallow in his despair and he doesn't justify himself. He will not do that, even if maybe they entered into his own mind. But even if they did, they were quickly put out of his mind. So what did he do? What was his response? Not his reaction, but his response. A calculated response. Not a knee jerk, but a response in faith. First, he encouraged himself in the Lord. He owned the situation. He owned the situation that God had providentially placed in his life. And he looked to God because of it. He sought the one who had orchestrated this very situation and he sought his comfort in order to understand. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And he was able to do this as a result of his constant meditation, his faithful prayer life, and his sensitivity to the things of God, and how God had been a constant source of strength and courage throughout his life. He looked back, and he saw God's hand in his life, how God had blessed him, and blessed him, and blessed him. And he wasn't going to forget God now. He was able to look back at all of God's kind providences, and how he brought Samuel to ordain him as king. Secondly, Notice what else he does. He seeks counsel from the priest. Abathar, the priest, Ahimelech's son. Because he wants to know the will of God. He's not reacting. He wants to know, what does God say about this? Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, that's it. These Amalekites, they're done. Let's get going. Let's get them. Let's kill them all. Because that's the natural response. It would be mine. Take my wife, my children, my sons, my daughters. Kill them all. But that's not what David does. That's not yet. He wants to know what does God want. What do you want? Since you orchestrated this situation, obviously you want a certain response to the situation. And at this point, I don't know what it is. I need counsel. I need to know which way to go. And I need to hear from the priest. So he seeks counsel from the priest so that he might know the will of God by the use of the ephod. And that was a robe that he would put on and of course then God would speak to him. 
and he shares, notice what he does, he shares his distress, he doesn't, he doesn't just suck it up. A lot of us, especially us men, we just want to suck it up. We don't want to talk to anybody about it. Not David, he's a real man. He seeks counsel from a godly man, and he shares his distress and David said to Abathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abathar brought thither the ephod to David. Now again, to put on the ephod was to inquire of the Lord. And this is an important action that God is impressing upon us. Firstly, it strikes a dramatic contrast between David and Saul. While Saul sought the counsel of the witch at Endor, David seeks God's counsel. He's not going to secularists. He's not going to wizards. He's not going to the philosophers or the psychiatrists or the psychoanalysts. He's going straight to the source. He's going straight to God. Secondly, while God had closed the door on hearing whatever Saul wanted to ask as a result of his rebellion, which was as the sin of witchcraft, he was ready and willing to hear David because David was an obedient son. Don't expect to rebel, 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 and then all of a sudden when crisis hits, oh God, help me. That's what everybody does. Oh God, now I need you. Notice that David doesn't ask why this thing is happening. Isn't that what we do? Lord, why is this happening? Why is this happening? We want to know why it's happening. David doesn't ask why it is happening. You never read here, David's asking why it's happening. He wants to know what he's supposed to do in light of it's happening. He doesn't ask God to take the situation from him. I mean, we do that all the time. Lord, I hurt my foot. I'm sick. I've got a flu. I've got a snuffy nose. I have a headache. Lord, take it from me. He doesn't say that. He asks how he should navigate the situation biblically according to the will of God. And so he looks to God for guidance. And this shows that his theology and his life's practice, his decision-making, and his life's purpose it was all interwoven. He didn't say one thing and do another. He didn't say, I'm going to trust God, I'm going to do all these things for God, and then when crisis hits, he forgets God. He was a consistent man. His faith was consistent. And this is the action of God's people. This must be the response of the children of God. In turmoil, and here's it gets no simpler than this, in turmoil, God's people look to God. Consider David's query. Verse 8, And David inquired at the Lord, saying, What shall I do, basically? Shall I pursue after the Amalekites? Shall I overtake them? I want to know what to do. David does not simply wallow in the situation. He seeks to remedy it. Wickedness was brought upon his people, his wives and the family of his men. Murder, kidnapping, destruction had been done so many times against the people of God. This needed to be answered. But David needed to know if God had done this to punish David and his men or if God wanted to incite David to go after the Amalekites once and for all for their destruction because that's what Saul failed to do. Remember, Saul was told to kill all the Amalekites. So David wasn't sure. And because he wasn't sure, he would not take it upon himself to attack unless the Lord was with him. There's an old saying, it says, when in doubt, do without. Seek counsel. Now certainly... He might have been justified in acting immediately to rescue his family. That would be natural, but that's not what he does. He doesn't let his natural emotions tell him what to do. He looks for not natural guidance, but supernatural guidance. And so he waits for God's answer. 
And God answers him. And he says exactly what David hoped, I'm sure, he would say. Go get him. Pursue. But he doesn't only say pursue. He says, I'm going to give you the victory. Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail you will recover all of those that were taken captive. And that's all David needed to hear. Thank you, Jesus. God will vindicate us. Once and for all, and that's what God does. That is God's MO. He vindicates his people when they're molested. And herein is the gospel message. Remember, Saul, a type of Adam, David, a type of Christ. As a type of Christ, David delivers his people from the bondage of wicked men, vindicating them and restoring them and their families to himself at the same time, bringing justice before the bar of God's throne. Furthermore, as we shall see, not only did David restore his people, but he destroys, finally, destroys the Amalekites in the same way that God has promised to destroy all the workers of iniquity. And so David went, verse 9, he and the 600 men that were with him and came to the brook Bezor, where those that were left behind stayed. Now, although David's original army numbered 600 men, and these 600 men were very faithful to David for the whole time of his exile, 200 of this company were too weak to continue into the fight. So as a result, they stay behind, leaving only 400 men to attack the Amalekites. Notice this is in verse 10. But David pursued he and 400 men for 200 abode behind, which were so faint that they could not go over the brook Bezor. Now, this might have initially been a disappointment, to say the least. A depleted army could mean the difference between victory and and defeat. Furthermore, every one of the 600 men of David's army, every one of them were tired. So what made these 200 men more tired? Could the excusing of the 200 men sit uh, poorly with the 400 that were going ahead to battle? Well, one might think that. One might be thinking they should all just cowboy up and go. Yet, David was really not concerned. How could he be concerned if 200 men went with him? If 100, if 50, if he and his armor bearer alone were to go? It wouldn't matter. Why? Because God said, you shall overtake them. And without fail, you will recover all of your families. So in full confidence, because of the word of God. And that's what we fail in. You know what God says? He says that the church will advance. But we sit here in in 2022 in the valley of the shadow of darkness with tyranny in every quarter of every institution, in government, in the economic realm, in the medical field, you name it, it is dark. And the apostates don't ask, what do we do to remedy this situation? They say, get us out of it. Rapture. Come and take us away so we can get out of this. They don't ask what David asks. They don't say, tell me how to navigate and I will navigate because God has surely said to us, we will prevail. We will prevail because God has told us that we will prevail. He says as much to the church at Rome in all things, in all these things. Notice he doesn't say in some things. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors. So in full confidence, David advances to meet the enemy with his 400 men. 
So what else did he know that gave him this encouragement? Yeah, the word of God. God said, you have my assurance. But he knew something else. And this is what we need to understand. He knew that victory was not about how many men you have in your army. It was about whether or not the Lord is on your side. One man with God, as the great reformer John Knox said, is the majority. He also knew that destroying the enemy with fewer men than with many men would guarantee that when the stories were told, they would say, it had to be God because these 400 men, they couldn't even lift up the sword, they were so tired. It had to be God that gave them the victory. It was God who won the day, not the number of the warriors. And finally, David might have even thought that this was good for the 400 men to see the work of God firsthand by depleting the army, yet giving a great victory over the feared Amalekites. I've always said, when people look to numbers, I said, Jesus had 12, and one of them was a devil, Judas the betrayer. And he changed the face of the world, and he changed the face of history. Trusting God, David leads his 400 men forward to battle only to see the hand of God at work in a most curious fashion. We will explore that next time when we continue in our exposition on the first book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.